The scripture reading today comes from Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through the beginning of verse 10. The sermon text will be the last chapter of the epistle of 1 Peter, but the scripture reading is from Paul's epistle to to Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Please turn now to the first epistle of Peter, chapter 5. Beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. So, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you 
casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray his blessing upon its preaching. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, this word of yours is holy. It is inspired by your Holy Spirit. O oh Lord, we who have been converted and indwelt by this selfsame Holy Spirit, beg now that you would grant us illumination, that we might understand this inspired word. And we pray it for your glory and for our good. And it is in Christ's name, whose word this is, that we pray. Amen. So I exhort the elders among you. The word translated in the ESV as so at the beginning can also be translated and often is as therefore. So certain things follow from the fact that God's judgment starts with the church, which we saw last time we were in 1 Peter, at the end of chapter 4. Certain things follow from the fact that God's judgment starts with his church. The first, therefore, after that pronouncement that God's judgment starts with his church, is the last verse of chapter 4. God's judgment begins with the church, then falls on the unbeliever, therefore, Put your trust in God. The second, therefore, that follows from the fact that God's judgment falls first on the church starts chapter 5 and involves an exhortation to elders, to the elders of these churches in Asia Minor, but of course to all of his elders since then. Because God's judgment begins in God's house, God's under-shepherds are the ones who are actually holding that lightning rod of God's judgment. Peter, in this exhortation, tells these elders to exercise oversight, that is, to oversee the flock of God, or to be bishoping 
in the ways he lays out in this letter. Let's consider some of the obvious assumptions, the apostolic assumptions that stand out in today's text. Assumptions that the Apostle Peter obviously makes concerning the nature of Christian discipleship and of church government. Peter assumes, first, that Christians are members of flocks. That is, they are members of congregations. Second assumption, Peter takes it as given that these flocks are ruled over and shepherded by presbyters, the Greek word for elder. In terms for flock and shepherd and shepherding, are all over this passage. Note how the Apostle refers to the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 4 as the chief shepherd, while tasking the elders with the job of shepherding Christ's flocks. The chief shepherd then rules over his sheep through his under-shepherds, who are to lead in his name, but also by his word. And, we are told, who are also going to have to give an account. They may not, in this rule, lord it over the flock, because the flocks are not ultimately theirs. The flock is his. Third assumption, that the sheep must submit to be overseen by the elders. If the elders are urged to shepherd in certain ways, this necessarily implies that the sheep are expected by the apostle to be shepherded. At Hebrews 13, 17, we are commanded as Christians, explicitly commanded to obey and submit to our elders in the church. And in 1 Timothy 5, 17, Paul writes, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor. So ruling is expected of Christ's elders. Now consider here a passage from Acts chapter 14. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So the preaching results in believers, in disciples. But in the apostolic practice and policy throughout all of the New Testament, these disciples were always then gathered and organized into churches. And those churches were always ruled, governed, shepherded by these elders. Now these things are basic assumptions of the apostles regarding Christ's true church. Now I should add here that the submission enjoined upon disciples here is always and only submission in the Lord. The authority of ministers and church governors, or those commonly called ruling elders, in his church is always and ever limited 
to ministerial and declarative authority. That is, they cannot make laws. They cannot create their own rules to bind a Christian's conscience. They can only declare what God's word says. A Christian's conscience may never be bound to anything except God's revealed will in Scripture. But let us consider for a moment a different question. To whom should a Christian submit in the Lord? I mean, those that bear the title of pastor abound in our modern world. You could probably become a licensed minister in the eyes of the state in one day if you applied yourself. Many people currently occupying that office today have done little more than that to get there, to have attained this place of rule, rule over Christ's own sheep in Christ's own church. But does the New Testament have standards for a valid ordination to the ministry, to being an elder? Does Christ only care about what kind of man serves as pastor? Or does Christ also care about how one becomes a pastor or an elder in his church? Who decides, in other words, whether a man meets the criteria found in the New Testament for the office of pastor or elder? In 1 Timothy 4.14, we are told explicitly by Paul that Timothy was ordained or set apart to his office by an ordination involving the laying on of hands by a presbytery, which is literally a council of elders. So Christ's Christ's apostles in the New Testament have shown us how to go about it. They've revealed Christ's procedures for making a person a minister or a ruling elder. So a felt internal call to be a pastor may be a necessary condition for taking up the mantle of ministry. That is not a sufficient condition for entering upon New Testament ministry. That felt call must be joined not only with the personal qualifications, the spiritual qualifications that we just read of in Titus this morning, but also that must be accompanied by an outward call issued by the visible church, represented by its elders. Not merely an outward confirmation issued by one's own family or friends, but by a presbytery, to use the New Testament term. A confirmation that that pastor's calling is genuine, and for his ordination to be truly in accord with what is revealed in Scripture. So before a Christian can join a church and submit to its under-shepherds in the Lord, that Christian should concern himself no less with how the pastor got into that position than how well he is reputed to perform the duties of that position. So to sum up this point, the apostolic pattern for the church, evident in Peter's commands and assumptions. One, Believers in Jesus Christ are always gathered into churches. These churches, number two, are ruled over by elders. 
by the word of the chief shepherd. And three, the sheep are to submit to these shepherds, but always and ever, only in the Lord. And borrowing from Paul's writing, we know that the biblical pattern for ordaining ministers is ordination, as we said, by a presbytery. A presbytery comprised, of course, of men who were themselves lawfully ordained by a presbytery. The churches the apostles established all followed this same rule. All possessed, brothers and sisters, this same form of church government. So what we have in these initial verses of 1 Peter 5 reflects a reality that some might call organized religion. Most people are proud to declare that they reject organized religion. And instead, they say they prefer to be spiritual. But the sort of spirituality that is opposed to organized religion is not Christian spirituality. It is certainly not apostolic spirituality. You don't arrive at true spirituality by rejecting organized religion. The contrary of organized religion is not spirituality. The contrary of organized religion is simply disorganized religion. Disorganized, do-as-you-please, have-it-your-own-way religion is not spiritual at all in the biblical view of things. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 actually defines for us, check it out later, Romans 7, Paul defines for us what is spiritual. At Romans 7.14, Paul says that God's law is spiritual. God's law is spiritual. God's rules and regulations are spiritual, meaning they come from and by his Holy Spirit. Our Our Lord and his apostles had no conception of and no interest in or tolerance for disorganized religion. And in fact, only conceive of Christianity as organized religion. Our God is the author of order and not of confusion. So everything you may have ever heard about organized religion, or maybe even have said or thought in times past about organized religion, is probably flat wrong and is moreover opposed to God his word, and his well-ordered kingdom. So those masses of Americans who are fleeing organized religion aren't really fleeing an undue regimentation of spiritual things, nor are they really fleeing a dead orthodoxy. They're not fleeing buildings or formalism or even hypocrites, no matter what they say. They're in fact fleeing the only visible manifestations of God's exercise of authority in this world. They're fleeing Christ's as the chief shepherd, excuse me, chief shepherd, and they're they're fleeing his revealed chain of command. They're fleeing his kingdom in its biblically revealed form. In short, they're fleeing his actual, his practical rule in space and time. Now let's sum up this section in the following way. 
The Apostle Peter says, because God's judgment begins in the household of God, and there within God's house, it begins with the ministers and the ruling elders, certain things follow. Namely, elders, you must rule humbly. Disciples, you must submit to the elders humbly. Christians, you must all be humbly, period. This, in essence, is the church's order of battle in this world. The church is, between the first and second comings of our Lord, subject to constant suffering, constant striving, constant battle. As a commanding general urges unit cohesion among his troops, now does Christ the King, in your hearing, come to you and say, He bids you to band together in your local congregations and presbyteries. That is, that you fall into ranks under his officers in his platoons and regiments. When you became a disciple, Christ the King assigned you a place in his church. Your local church is your platoon. Are you absent without leave? And unless his sheep cling to and submit to these under-shepherds in the Lord, and unless the elders rule well and humbly before the Lord, and according to his commands, declaring what the will of God is from the scriptures, we are all easily scattered, isolated, and devoured by our enemy. Which brings us to the next part of today's text. Why all this emphasis on humility in this passage? There are six things the Lord hates, says the sixth chapter of Proverbs. The first thing he hates, and that tops his list, is the one with haughty or proud looks. Pride, in fact, was likely the fall of Satan. Arrogance, then, pride, is the family resemblance of the devil. You could say pride is a facial feature of the evil one, and he hands it down, as it were, to his children. And the proud, you could also say, have their father's eyes. That is, they have a haughty look. To the decree that Christians retain or adopt these features, we look like our adversary. Humility, faith, and trust in God's wisdom and care and suffering after the pattern of Christ are, on the other hand, the family resemblance of Christ. The way of Christ, the way commanded of his own, is one of humility and of meekness. As we are told, if you humble yourself, God in time will exalt you as he has our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you exalt yourself, he will, in time, humble you. And you should try to avoid such divine humiliation by humbling yourself without delay. From Isaiah 57, 
For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. The humility enjoined on the Christian in this passage in 1 Peter is connected to the need for Christian watchfulness and trust in God. Now, humility is connected to watchfulness because the proud one is especially vulnerable to Satan. The sentinel who nods at his post, he suffers from overconfidence. He is, we could say, at ease in Zion. And the head that seeks to poke out above the heads of the others in his own regiment, he is the one that will attract the enemy's darts. The the soldier who in pride breaks ranks in order to distinguish himself, in a matter of speaking, in fact leaves the shield wall that still protects the rest. In other words, the proud one who yet bears the name of Christ is liable to be the object of God's humbling. And God will often let the evil one, as we are told in Scripture, sift a Christian in order to restore him to his proper carriage and attitude of humility. And our own author knows a lot about that. Peter was intimately familiar with this fact, this pattern of God's dealing with his disciples. This happened to him. You'll recall that when he boasted that even if the rest of the disciples betrayed Jesus, he would never do so. That pride, which made him exalt himself above his brothers, that exposed him to Satan's sifting. And then he denied Christ three times, not once. And then he was crushed with remorse. Peter, the author of today's passage, was himself greatly humbled. But humility is also connected to trust in this text because trusting another, namely the Lord, for your care and your well-being requires you to stop trusting in yourself. The problems are not there to showcase your power. The problems are there to train you to trust, to trust in and wait upon God, to see his power displayed, and that requires humility. And don't also how watchfulness against Satan's attacks in verses 8 and 9, and firmness of faith, and understanding that such sufferings are common to all the brethren, notice how all these things are linked together. All the brothers are exercised in this way. Not certain brothers. Not only brothers caught in secret sins. Not only proud brothers who need special humiliations, as Peter did. Consider righteous Job. He was described as righteous by God, and yet was subjected to repeated attacks by the evil one. But only those attacks 
that furthered God's wise providence and plan for Job. Satanic attack also served God's wise plan for Peter, as we just discussed. Sufferings associated with satanic attacks befall all the brethren. We, for our part, are, however, required first to resist his temptations and yet also resist the tendency to despair or question God's goodness or wisdom that do accompany such sufferings. Indeed, we are to cast all of our cares on the Lord and to trust in him. And then, after a little while, we are told in verse 10, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory, the dominion, forever and ever. Amen. In this last section of the epistle, we of course find Peter's closing remarks. Let's make a few quick observations about this final section. First, Peter mentions that the epistle is by Silvanus. Interestingly, the consensus of scholarly opinion is that this Silvanus is the Silas of the book of Acts, Paul's traveling companion, who is himself identified as a prophet of the first century church. Second, Peter says, she who is at Babylon sends you greetings. Chosen sister probably means the Christian congregation at Babylon, a sister congregation of God's elect. It probably means that because the Apostle John referred to congregations in this identical cryptic way. So that's likely what Peter means here. By Babylon, he also probably means Rome, and not the ancient metropolis, which had been abandoned for some time. The literal Babylon had been in ruins for many generations prior to this, the writing of this epistle. So we believe it is a cryptic reference to the capital of the Roman Empire. He refers to as Babylon, namely Rome. And the reference here to his son Mark is likely a reference to Peter's spiritual son. Mark, who was Peter's traveling secretary, and who also wrote the Gospel of Mark for us. Mark, like Silas, had also once traveled with the Apostle Paul too, so that's interesting that they're sharing staff like that, Peter and Paul. Now the holy kiss mentioned in verse 14, we may understand to be like that kind of friendly peck on the cheek that other cultures like Mediterranean cultures uh, perform when they meet or when they say farewell. But in any event, that cultural gesture of greeting would in our culture, an Anglo-Saxon culture you could say traditionally, could be equivalent to a warm handshake. But let's consider more closely this relatively more significant language here, back in verse 12. This is the true grace of God. What does the this refer to? 
What specifically is the true grace of God that Peter has declared? In grammatical terms, what is the antecedent for the pronoun this? What is the grace of God in which we are to stand firm? I believe the grace we are to stand firm in is the all-encompassing grace of God mentioned in verse 10, which not only makes us the gift of suffering, to conform us to the pattern and image of Christ, but also the grace of God that sustains us in that suffering and that will restore and confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Let us close now by considering the final words of this epistle. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is a word from the Lord to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a blessing, a benediction. It is a grant of peace to those who are in Christ. Peter uses the same expression as Paul does then. This idea of being in Christ is an idea of being united to Christ by the Spirit through faith and repentance. It means to be joined to his body in this world means to be receiving his grace and his instruction by ordinary means, his spiritual means. Means that he has revealed, that he uses and blesses by his Holy Spirit, namely the word, sacrament, and prayer. And that biblical church discipline caught up in the form of government that is assumed throughout this whole passage and the rest of the Bible. Being in Christ means... To be so united to him that his righteousness covers us. His righteousness blots out our sins from the Father's sight. That is why, that alone is why, the Apostle can, in the Lord's name, pronounce the benediction or blessing that he does at the end. He can only speak peace to those who are in Christ by faith and repentance. These blessings can only be uttered toward those joined to him, like the elect exiles among the churches of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, like the elect exiles at Mid-Cities Presbyterian Church in Bedford, Texas. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for drawing us out of the darkness and bringing us into the light, uniting us to your Son, causing us to be heirs of you in him. We ask, O Lord, that you would cause us every day to meditate on the reason, to meditate upon the reason that we are at peace with you, and direct our praises to that propitiation by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And it is in his name we pray, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.